Last week, we talked about really different men that we see that God used in um, copying and translating um, the Word of God. And we, um, at the conclusion of last week, um, we were talking about Willem Tyndale, that um, he was uh, um, um, taken by the Roman Catholic Church and, um, the, and also really the um, Church of England um, as well. Um, the, um, the England church that he was um, arrested and in prison um, and burned at the stake. And, um, and the, the, his crime was for translating the Bible in New English. You know, uh, one of the priests told, told Willem Tyndale, you know, we'd be better to be with, with the Pope's laws than be without God's laws. And then Willem Tyndale said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. And, and that if God spare my life, I will make a plowboy no more scripture than thou dost. And, and so we see that he wasn't liked by the established um, churches. But um, as he was being burned at the stake, his last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Praying that the king of England's eyes would be open. Well, we see that um, about a hundred years later, we see the beginning of the idea of the King James Version. And um, before um, we get, get to that, there's the um, Wycliffe Bible, there's the Tyndale Bible, there's the um, Coverdale Bible, and the Matthew Bible, the Great Bible, the Geneva Bible, and the Bishop's Bible, and the Rios Douay Bible. And now the um, Wycliffe Bible and the Reims Douay Bible were both based on the Latin Vulgate, um, which was known to be corrupt and have errors in it. But um, with Wycliffe, that's what he had. Um, he knew Latin, and so that's the scriptures um, that he ended up using. Um, the Reims Douay Bible was produced by the Roman Catholic Church, and, they, and so of course they went to the Latin. But before, they were trying to keep the Bible from being in the common language. Um, but then as the Protestant Reformation took fire, they're like, you know what, it's already out there. We need to have our own version, so that way, you know what, we'll, we'll at least have it say what we want it to say. And so, just going to give a brief history of these. I actually put these on the, on the wrong slide, but um, with the um, um, Tyndale Bible, we talked about that last week, but then with Miles Coverdale, um, he remained a loyal disciple um, the last six years of Tyndale's life and carried the English Bible project forward and accelerated the speed. Um, remember that Tyndale, he did the New Testament and parts of the Old Testament, but most of the Old Testament he never got to. Coverdale finished translating the Old Testament, and in 1535 he printed the first complete Bible in the English language. Um, as far as it being printed out. And he used um, Luther's German text and some Latin sources. And so the first complete English Bible was printed October 4, 1535, known as the Coverdale Bible. Then John Rogers, um, an English um, pastor and a Bible translator and commentator, he guided the development of the Matthew Bible um, during the reign of King Henry VIII, and was the first English Protestant martyr under Mary I of England who was determined to restore um, Roman Catholicism in England. And now he um, went by the name, he, he gave it the name the Thomas Matthew Bible. And um, there's speculation that it was maybe the, um, really so people wouldn't know it was coming from him because then he would have became a martyr and he did end up becoming a martyr nevertheless. But even though his name was John Rogers, the Bible ended up being um, called the Matthews Bible. In 1539, um, Thomas Cramner, the Archbishop of Canterbury, hired Miles Coverdale. So uh, Miles Coverdale is being involved again at the request of King Henry VIII to publish the Great Bible. Now remember, before King Henry VIII, he pretty much despised the Bible. He didn't think the Bible should be in a common language either. He's now more get, given allowance for it simply for um, political um, reasons. But um, he, 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 
it, it, it became the first English Bible authorized for public use. It, it was distributed to every church, chained to the pulpit. It was called Great Bible. It was a giant Bible, and they would chain it to um, the pulpit. And um, a reader was even provided for the illiterate. If someone could not read the Bible for themselves, they had a reader in the churches that would read it for the people when they wanted to come and know what it says. In the 1550s, the church at Geneva, Switzerland, was sympathetic to the reformer refugees and was one of the uh, only a few safe havens for those who left the Catholic Church. Many of them met in Geneva, led by Miles Coverdale. So this is the third Bible um, translation that he's actually um, being involved in. And um, John Fox, publisher of um, the famous Fox Book of Martyrs, and Thomas Sampson, and then really being led is the scholar Willem Whittingham. Um, in Geneva, there was protection um, by John Calvin and the Church of Geneva, and they, produ- they wanted to produce a Bible so they could educate their families. And the New Testament was completed in 1557, the complete Bible in 1560, and it became known as the Geneva Bible. And the Geneva Bible was the first Bible to add chapters and verses to it, and uh, which is very handy today. You know, you just imagine if I just told you, you know, okay, turn somewhere here in the Bible, and I couldn't um, give you a chapter or give you a verse. It'd take a long time to be on the same page, to be in the same spot. And um, the Geneva Bible also um, had a lot of study notes in it. And in in this um, study notes, they were considered controversial for a couple of reasons. Um, One, it praised um, the midwives um, that disobeyed Pharaoh's order in saving the babies. Well, some of the kings didn't like that because you don't question the Pharaoh or the kings of the land. And so some didn't like the Geneva Bible um, because of that and also some um, because of its um, more Calvinistic notes. And so some wanted a Bible where it didn't have the notes in there. Um, that way, you know, the Bible would speak for itself and there would be um, no study notes. And, and so the study notes, they were um, a, the institutional church of the day, were against it again by the rulers. And so they wanted another version, one that was less inflammatory in tone. Uh, and in 1568, a revision of the Great Bible, known as the Bishop's Bible, was introduced. But one thing that's significant about the Geneva Bible, that's actually the Bible that the pilgrims brought over, um, the first Bible in America. So Geneva Bible had great significance. And then in the 1580s, again, the Roman Catholic Church saw they lost the battle to suppress the Word of God that was already in English by the multitudes. And so now they end up deciding to make their own official um, version. Even though um, Erasmus warned against the Latin Vulgate, the Catholic Church chose to um, use the Latin Vulgate. And so we see again with the Wycliffe Bible, he used the Latin Vulgate. That's what he had available. He wasn't a Greek scholar. And then the Reims 2A Bible used Latin Vulgate. But the Tyndale Bible, the Coverdale Bible, the Matthew Bible, Great Bible, Geneva Bible, Bishop's Bible, um, were all based on the Greek instead of the Latin. You know, the Bible was written in, in the New Testament, written in Greek. And so, you know, and they were was based on the received text. Um, we talked about a lot of that in the first um, message, the traditional text, the Byzantine text, um, the, the text that came from Antioch, Syria, um, where the Bible says they were first called Christians. And so lots of information in there. And so just going over that real quick. But then remember the prayer of Willem Tyndale that the king of England's eyes would be open. And so about 100 years later, we have King James the first and the fourth. He became king of Scots. Um, it's James IV in 1567. In 1603, he also became the king of England and Ireland as James I when he inherited the English and Irish crown. And therefore, he ended up uniting the crown of the kingdom of Scotland with the crown of the kingdoms of England and Ireland. 
And he continued to reign in all three kingdoms until his death in 1625. Okay, well, it wasn't King James' idea at first to come out with a new Bible. The um, Puritans um, were like, you know, we need, we need a new Bible translation. Again, one that's not as inflammatory um, in the notes. And, and one that corrected some of the mistakes that were in the others. Now, again, the manuscripts were all the same, the same type manuscript family that they came from. But in, in 1603, the Puritans' proposal, it was called the Millinery Petition, and it called upon King James of England to allow certain changes in church services and government, not to be such a denominational-type hierarchy um, or to be a state church as much, and it was signed by approximately a thousand Puritan clergymen. And um, they asked for the priests to um, eliminate the sign of the cross, that it was just something superstitious and not something biblical. Um, also, to eliminate the elaborate priestly garments. You know, that Jesus warned about the Pharisees that um, came in their fancy um, clerical garments, and they wanted to eliminate this. And to enforce stricter rules regarding church discipline. Not to allow sin to remain um, in the camp, to remain in the churches. You know what? The way the Church of England actually was started was King Henry VIII. He wanted a divorce. The Pope wouldn't give it to him. So he started his own church. It's the Church of England. And so you know what? The Puritans were like, you know what? We need to have, you know what? There needs to be church discipline. You know what? We can't have sin just going rampant. Um, in the church, and they wanted provision um, for changes in church polity and how the church government was um, ran. And so in 1604, King James called the Hampton Court Conference um, amongst the group were nine bishops, nine clergymen, four professors from Cambridge and Oxford, stacked against just four Puritans. Um, John Reynolds was the president of Corpus Christi College, Oxford, and he was the main speaker for the Puritans. Most of the Puritans' requests were defeated, um, but one really caught the attention of the king. He, um, he requested, uh, um, John Reynolds did, Um, that a translation be made of the whole Bible as consonant as can be to the original Hebrew and Greek, and this to be set out and printed without any marginal notes, and only to be used in all churches of England in time of divine service. A few reasons why they thought they needed a new translation was because the great Bible was too cumbersome. It was big, okay? People weren't going to be able to just have that kind of Bible living at home. And the Geneva Bible was too controversial, not with the text. You know what, the Geneva Bible and what it what was written, you know what, you match it with the King James, and it is almost identical um, verbatim. Um, just more, more spilling differences with the language just being a little bit different. But um, controversial in the notes. And the Bishop's Bible was a little bit too careless. That It was really just a project that was um, sped up. And um, one to, um, three examples um, of problems the Puritans perceive in the bishops and great Bible. They said, Galatians 4.25, um, the Greek word, I don't even know how to pronounce it, okay? is not well translated as now it is border of, neither expressing the force of the word, nor the apostle's sense, nor the situation of the place. You know, talking about, okay, Agar, answer of, in the Bible, King James says, and he, um, great answer of to Jerusalem. And so they are like, the word border of does not really give the right sense of the translation. Secondly, Psalm 105, verse 28 from the Great Bible, um, it says, they were not obedient. You know what I'm talking about? Aaron um, and Moses. And um, the original being, they were not disobedient. So they saw that, you know what, there was a low air in here. And now these are very minor compared to what you would see from these and from some of the new versions today. But they were like, you know what, that gives the opposite meaning. It's not, it's not what the Hebrew um, said. It didn't say they were not obedient. It said they were not disobedient. A difference. 
Thirdly, Psalm 106, 30, also from the Great Bible, then stood up fiends and prayed. They said, said, the Hebrew hath executed judgment. And so they're like, it's it's not properly um, translated. July 22nd, 1604, 54 men were appointed to translate the Bible. 47 are actually known to be engaged in the work um, that some of them died um, before it was finished and others may have resigned before the work was completed. And um, the translators represented the best known biblical scholarship in the world um, in that day. Um, they, they, they held divinity degrees. 39 of the 47 held doctor of divinity degrees. And they were all either pastors, preachers, or professors in theological colleges. They were godly men with few exceptions who loved the Word of God. You know, some of them were so high church England that they really despised, they hated the Puritans. So some of them were ungodly in some of their attitude toward them. But by and large, they um, were godly men and had great sympathy um, for the Puritans as well. And um, just, we don't have time to go through every one of the translators, um, every 47 one of them, but I'm just going to give a highlight of several of them so you kind of get an idea of um, the scholarship and um, the character of these men. Lance Andrews, he studied at Cambridge University, majoring in Eastern languages and divinity. As a child, he was addicted to study that he was forced to play. That his parents would be like, no more studying. Go outside and play. Man, wouldn't you love it if it was that easy um, schooling your kids? Um, you know what? You're studying too much. Go play. But he was addicted to study. He learned a new language each year during his one-month Easter vacation with his parents. So he spent his vacation learning a new language. And this was just about every year of his childhood. He ended up never getting married. Um, so, you know, that kind of helps him really to be, stay addicted to his studies. Uh, and, and that he possessed great ability in Greek, Latin, Hebrew, Chaldee, Syriac, and Arabic. Um, he was fully conversant in 15 European languages. It was said that such was his skill in all languages, especially in the Oriental that had he been present at Babel, he might have served as interpreter general. And so they're like, man, this man is smart. And so he'd be the interpreter um, of speaking in all those unknown tongues. Um, he sp- spent five hours per day in prayer and devotions. I mean, you think about what the entertainment and recreation really takes away from us today. Um, not saying that everyone spent five hours per day in prayer devotion, but many of them spent an hour, two hours. Um, but this man, he spent five hours per day in prayer and devotions on average. And he was an outstanding preacher. He was called the star of preachers, and many were converted to Christ under his preaching. He was very strong um, anti-Catholic in um, the Catholic abuses, so he preached against that. William Bedwell, um, he was the best Arabic scholar of his time, and he was the author of a seven-language lexicon. And um, Alexander McClure, in his book, writes, To Bedwell belongs the honor of being the first who considerably promoted and revived the study of Arabic language and literature in Europe. And he wrote a book called A Discovery of the Impostures of Mohammed and of the Quran." That he was Arabic, he knew Arabic well, but he exposed all the impostures um, that Muhammad and the um, Quran gave. John Reynolds, again, he was the um, Puritan um, spokesperson. He entered Oxford University at age 13. He was lecturer in Greek at Oxford at age 23. You know, usually people are going to college to maybe learn things at that time. He's a professor teaching there. Highly skilled in languages, serve as the president of Corpus Christi College, and again, the um, spokesperson for the Puritan Party at the Hampton Court Conference. And it was said that his memory was little less than miraculous, that he could readily turn to any material passage in every leaf, page, column, and paragraph of the numerous and voluminous works he had read. 
that he was spoken of as a living library and a third university. Now, you know, he talked about writings, ancient writings. And you know what? He could tell you what it said, and he could turn to the page that spoke about it. And so very great intelligence. Um, Ian Paisley, um, he said this, this Dr. Reynolds was party to a most curious episode. He had been an ardent Roman Catholic, and he had a brother who was an equally ardent Protestant. They argued with each other so earnestly that each convinced the other. The Roman Catholic became a Protestant, and the Protestant became a Roman Catholic. And so their debate skills were so well, they converted each other um, over. And so he became um, a Protestant. And um, they um, mediate, meditate how they, there's something that he preached. At the, at the height of the popularity of Shakespearean productions, um, he wrote a book against stage plays. He said, they meditate how they may inflame a tender youth with love, entice him to dalliance, to whoredom, to incest, inert their minds and bodies to uncommonly dissuade, rowing, boasting, navish, foolish, brainsick, Drunken conceits, words, and gestures. And this is just a Shakespearean place. And he's saying, man, these are wicked. These are, these are evil. You think about where Hollywood is today. And, that, uh, and then they act surprised about this Me Too movement. That's what Hollywood glorifies, the violence, the sex, um, the fornication, the adultery. Well, he preached against that kind of stuff before it was even on the big screen when it was simply a play. Now, he ended up dying before the translation was completely finished, but even while he was alive on his deathbed, translators would bring their work to him for advice on different passages. John Boyce, he was taught by his father, um, John, um, read the Old Testament in Hebrew at age five, and writing in the language at six years old. Writing in the Hebrew language at six years old. Went to Cambridge University at age 14. Talk about a running start program. Um, 14, going to Cambridge University. He often went to the university library at 4 o'clock in the morning to study Greek till 8 in the evening. Um, he was an exact um, grammarian. He had read 60 grammar, so he'd be the one that would correct your, uh, my speech all the time. But um, even in his old age, um, he spent 8 hours in daily study. Miles Smith, and again, these are all different men that were appointed for the translation work of the King James Bible. Which again, it wasn't actually called the King James Bible initially. It was called the authorized um, version. It wasn't until years later people ended up nicknaming it the King James Bible. Miles Smith, he was an expert in Hebrew, Chaldee, Syriac, Latin, Greek, and Arabic, and they were so familiar to him as if it was his mother tongue. He wrote the translator's preface to the authorized version. And so if you get an older King James Bible or a new one that includes it, um, most of your Bibles, King James Bibles don't include it nowadays, but very good information. It really um, shows you what the political atmosphere was like, the church culture, um, so very good reading. Um, Thomas Bilson, another translator, um, Anthony Wood writes of him, that he was so complete in divinity, so well-skilled in languages, so read in the church fathers, so judicious in making use of his readings, that at length he was found to be no longer a soldier, but a commander-in-chief in the spiritual warfare. And so he was really looked up to. And um, um, Henry Seville, he was one of the most profound, exact, and critical scholars of his age, he was first to edit the complete works of Christendom. He loved to read so much that his wife felt neglected. You know, any wives ever feel neglected? You know, don't, maybe don't raise your hand, don't embarrass your husband. No wife says, yeah. Well, um, <laughs> Sir Henry, uh, or his wife said this. Sir Henry, I would that I were a book, and then you would a little more respect me. You know, any wives ever say something along those lines? You know, if I was this hobby or if I was that, you know, I'd get more time. This is what she, that's what she said. You know, if I were a book, 
you would a little more respect me. A person stand by heard that and foolishly said, ma'am, you ought to be an almanac that he might change you at year's end. And so he's like, you know, like a calendar that, you know, at the year's end, you'll be done with. He'll have a new wife. And so he didn't get any brownie points for um, that remark, um, for sure. Lawrence Chatterton, um, he was extremely skilled in Latin, Greek, Hebrew, French, Spanish, and Italian. Well acquainted with the writings of the Jewish rabbis, he grew up, grew up in a strict Catholic home, and his wealthy father wanted him to be a lawyer. But upon being converted to Christ in 1564, he abandoned his law studies to attend Christ College in Cambridge. He wrote to his father to request some assistance. His dad wrote, Son Lawrence, if you will renounce the new sect which you have joined, you may expect all the happiness which the care of an indulgent father can assure you. Otherwise, I enclose a shilling to buy a wallet. Go and beg. You know, he, he hated that. He came out of Catholic Church and became a Puritan. He replied that he could not give up his faith in the Word of God, that he, and then his father disinherited him of the large estate, and he, he ended up himself becoming a great Puritan preacher. After preaching for two hours, he stopped, and the congregation begged him to preach more. And so he preached for another hour. So three hours of preaching. Thomas Holwin, he was a superb scholar and theologian. He was very strong anti-Catholic. When he went on a journey, he would gather together um, the fellows at the college and exhort them. I commend you to love to the love of God and to the hatred of popery and superstition. And so, so that's where you know it. There's there's these church battles and. They're like, you know what, we don't want to be held in bondage, and so hate the popery and the superstition. And here's from the Martin Luther's German Bible, um, a picture of the pop, pap, pap, papacy. The Pope is the whore of Babylon, um, is their interpretation of Revelation 17. Richard Kilby, he was a Hebrew and Greek scholar at Oxford. On one occasion, he heard a preacher give a lecture on three reasons why a word wasn't translated correctly in the authorized King James Version. You know what? Some of you maybe heard preachers, never from this pulpit, but in some churches where they say, will say something like, this word would be better translated as this. Really making themselves the authority. Well, a preacher was preaching and gave three reasons why a particular passage was not translated correctly. Um, Kilby later spoke to the preacher saying he should have preached doctrine to the congregation instead of wasting his time saying the word was mistranslated. He told a man that himself and the other translators had considered those three reasons why a what maybe, maybe shouldn't be translated as it was, but told him they found 13 other reasons why the translation was indeed correct. And um, one of the things that in his preaching, he said this, Consider well what he have done for you. He made you at the first like unto himself in wisdom and holiness. And when you were by sin made like the devil and must therefore have been condemned to hell torments, God sent his only son who taken in unto him a body and soul was a man and suffered great wrong and shameful death to secure your pardon and you buy you out of the devil's bondage, that ye might be renewed to the likeness of God, to the end ye might be fit to keep company with all saints in the joys of heaven. He was a preacher of the gospel. And so um, Alexander McClure um, in Translators Revive um, in 1855, he says these translators had tremendous scholarship. He wrote, it is confidently expected that the reader of these pages will yield to the conviction that all the colleges of Great Britain and America, even in this proud day of boastings, could not bring together the same number of divines equally qualified by learning and piety for the great undertaking of making a translation of the Bible. Although there were differences in opinion 
um, in polity and doctrine between the translators, basically just two groups, strong Puritan and Episcopalian Church of England convictions. The one binding conviction that they all had was that they were dealing with God's sacred truth, that the scriptures were the inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word of God and should not be altered. You know, you could again read their original preface um, to the reader. Um, um, part, of their, the, part of the preface says this, um, The scriptures then being acknowledged to be so full and perfect, how can we excuse ourselves of negligence if we do not study them, of curiosity if we be not content with them? It is not only an armor, but also a whole armory of weapons, both offensive and defensive, whereby we may save ourselves and put the enemy to flight. It is not an herb, but a tree, or rather a whole paradise of trees of life, which bring forth fruit every month, and the fruit thereof is for meat, and the leaves for medicine, a fountain of most pure water springing up into an everlasting life, and what marvel. The original thereof being from heaven, not from Merv, the offer being God, not man, the editor, the Holy Spirit, not the wit of the apostles or prophets, the penmen, such as were sanctified from the womb and endured with a principal portion of God's Spirit, the matter, verity, piety, um, purity, uprightness, the form, God's Word, God's testimony, God's oracles, the Word of truth, the Word of salvation. And so they treasure this. This is the Word of God, and we are going to work on translating it faithfully. And again, you know, this goes back to our first lesson. We don't have time to really dive into this again, but if you haven't listened to, weren't here, listen to the first um, lesson where we deal with the different manuscripts, the different manuscript families. Um, and um, the King James was based on the Texas Receptus, the received text, the manuscripts that were used by Christians throughout history. Um, John Bergen um, in the 1800s, 1880s, um, when the revised version was coming out, he was initially part of the committee and was, they were going to just update some of the archaic words in the King James Bible. But then with Westcott and Hort, they snuck in another text, which is now called the Alexandrian text, the critical text, and they were trying to do it under a vow of secrecy that they wouldn't let anybody know. Well, John Bergen and some others, they came out um, blazing and saying, no, this is not right. And then he says this, call this text Erasmian. Um, You know what? Erasmus was one that compiled some Greek manuscripts and put printed them in a Greek edition, in, in a, um, a printed edition, the text of Stevens, the, or of Beza, or of Alex verse, call it the receive, or the traditional, or by whatever name you please. The fact remains that a text has come down to us, which is attested by a general consensus of ancient copies, ancient fathers, and ancient versions. Now you see in the manuscripts that back the King James Bible, you see it in the ancient Greek copies. You see it in the church father quotes of Scripture that they quote from the received text, not the critical text, and from ancient versions, other translations. You know, um, um, other translations before 500 A.D. You know, remember that um, by 500 A.D., the Bible was translated in about 500 languages. But then by 600 A.D., it got reduced to just one, the Latin Vulgate. But of the other translations, they said they match the Greek receive text. And so did Martin Luther's German Bible and, some, and the French Bibles. And so besides what manuscripts they came from being important, another important consideration in translation work is the type of translation used. There's either formal equivalence or there's dynamic equivalence being used or a complete paraphrase. And um, so to a formal equivalence in translation work is to render a translation word for word, not just the thoughts or meaning. Where a, dyna- or a, a dynamic equivalence is more of 
let's translate the general idea, the thoughts of it. But the King James um, translation, the translators chose a formal equivalence, that they would do it word for word as much as possible. Now, again, with any translation, there may be a little bit of dynamic translation involved in that sometimes the words are, um, uh, are back, backwards in one language, forward in the other language. They're not really backwards or forward. It, language is written t- differently. So every translation word, there's a little bit of dynamic translation, but the, the authorized version, the King James, their idea was to go for his word for word as much as possible. That the classical method um, of translation whereby the words, the sense, the style, and the emphasis of the Hebrew or Greek text are accurately translated and set in the proper form of the English language. And that's how a translation should be done. You know, the Bible says every word of God is pure. So every one of God's words would be important. You know, I just get an example of something that's different. The English Standard Version in Luke 4, 3 to 4 says, The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Okay? So, why? Why, why is Jesus even saying, Man shall not live by bread alone? Well, you don't really see that in the English Standard Version. You go into King James Version, and the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command a stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. That every word of God was important. And that's what's in the Greek. You know, that every word of God. And that's what's in the Hebrew, where it talks about, um, um, where is it? I believe it's Isaiah or Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy about how that every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so formal equivalence is with the concept that you want to translate all the words as much as is possible, not just the general idea and thoughts. The scholars who did the NIV believe that it's beneficial to put in English what they believe the writers of Scripture meant rather than what they actually said. Um, one um, great problem to, with this approach is the element of interpretation that is introduced into the translation process. To translate is to put it into English. To interpret is to explain um, what it means. Oops, I had in there twice. Let's see. Okay, so here's another example. Okay, here's a formal equivalence um, in 1 Corinthians 7.24. The Bible says, Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. That's a faithful translation of the Greek. The today's New International Version is the dynamic equivalence, and they wrote, Brothers and sisters, all of you is responsible to God to remain in the situation in which God called you. So there's two mistakes they do here. One, they're wanting to do a dynamic equivalence. They're trying to guess what Paul meant instead of saying what he said. Secondly, they're making it gender neutral. And um, here, they're really making it there because the passage is talking about a man and then it's also talking about the virgin. He's talking about how it's good if a man could remain single and just give his life to God, then that's wonderful. But if not, he has this gift of God that marriage is a blessing from God. And so in this passage, he's actually talking to the man. He's not even talking to the sisters um, yet, or all of you. And so it's the translator's interpretation, not the translation of the writer's words. Um, a man working on a translation of a dynamic equivalency version of a Bible into a tribal language in northeast India, he reasoned this. He said, This tribe has never sacrificed lambs, but they have sacrificed roosters to their gods in days past. Therefore, we must translate John's testimony as follows. Behold, the cock of God which taketh away the sin of the world. And, and so... They're, they're trying to get, we want to give the idea, and they know what chickens are, they know what roosters are, but 
but you're changing what God said. Another example, um, evangelist Macon Segner of Nagwin gave it this illustration of, uh, or he's the one that gave the North um, East India one, but in Nepal, the United Bible Societies, in making a translation, was writing Isaiah 118 as, though your sins be as scarlet, they may be white as the inside of a coconut. Now, is a coconut the same as snow? No. Are they both white? Sure. But it's not, the writer did not say the inside of the coconut. It said snow. Now again, those that promote a dynamic equivalence, they try to say it'll be easier to understand because they know what coconuts are. Well, you know what you kind of miss out with it not being snow? You know what? Snow, when it comes, it covers everything. And you know, you think about, okay, our sins being covered. Is there, do you really get the same picture from the inside of a coconut? No. But with snow, you do. So the proper thing then would be to do is a preacher to explain what snow is. To, to teach it. The preacher could give the interpretation and, and the people could get the interpretation. They could learn. They could study it. But we don't change God's words. We, we explain God's words, but we don't. We're not to change it. So anyways, these 47 translators, they are all um, brought together um, in you three different groups. And we're almost done. Um, Westman, um, some of them went to Westminster. Some of them went to Cambridge. And some of them went to Oxford. So they were divided in you three locations. And, and, and then they were divided in you two groups at each location. Each member of the group made his own translation first. Okay, the, the ten men in group one at Westminster, okay? Genesis to Second Kings. That was what their main focus was to be. Every one of those ten men made their own translation. And then they would compare it. They would look at one another. They would, they, they, they would read it uh, um, aloud. Okay, so each member made his own translation first. Then members of each group met to compare one another's work. They would read it out loud, and then they would make markings when the reading would be different than their own, the, the, the slight variation um, or a big departure, whatever it may be. They would catch where there was difference. And then they would be, work together and go, okay, this is what we're going to submit. This is the final copy. And then, um, uh, and before that also, groups were authorized to get help from any scholar in the land. If there was some di great difficulty, they didn't, couldn't figure out how to translate it, perhaps the one where um, the, one, the one preacher said there's three reasons why it shouldn't be translated, but then the man responded, there's 13 reasons why it should be what it is. Those kind of cases, they could get any scholar from the land and get their input. And when the group was completed, it was sent to the other five groups for their assessment. That they would all look at it, and then they would work on translating it to see, okay, is this being faithful to the Hebrew, or is it being faithful um, to um, the Greek? And then in 1609, uh, when, when the Bible, complete Bible was translated and re reviewed by each group, it then came before a select committee of 12 men, two from each group. So then they would go through and look at the challenging passages. The passages that, you know what, this could be translated one of two ways. What's the best way to translate it? And so they would look at it that way. In 1609, this group met for daily for nine months at the Stationers Hall in London. They acted as a referral committee in areas of difficulty and disputed passages. Finally, a two-man team went over any last disputable passages and prepared it for the press, and the entire work was overseen by Richard Bancroft, the Bishop of London. In the prologue to the English Hesapla in 1841, they wrote, as the number of companies was six, 
and the members in each company varied from seven to ten, it follows that every several part would be examined at the least fourteen times, distinctly many parts fifteen times, and some seventeen. And so this was with great effort to make a faithful translation. The authorized King James Version was published in 1611 by Robert Barker, the printer to the King's Most English Majesty. And some historic quotes um, about it. And Matthew Poole in his commentary says, In the English Version published in 1611 occur many specimens of an edition truly gigantic, of uncommon skill in the original tongues, or extraordinary critical acuteness and discrimination. Harvard University Press, just as back as 1987, said, the King James Bible is still arguably the version that best preserves the literary effects of the original languages. John Livingston Lowe said, the King James Bible is the noblest monument of English prose. Wilbur Robinson in 1940 said, The authorized version is a miracle and a landmark. Its felicities are manifold. Its music has entered into the very blood and marrow of English thought and speech. They, by Joseph Philpott, 1861, they were deeply penetrated with reverence for the Word of God, and therefore they felt themselves bound by a holy constraint to discharge their trust in the most faithful way, under this divine constraint, they were led to give us a translation unequaled for faithfulness to the original, yet at the same time clothed in the purest and simplest English. Not only was theirs the best of the English Bibles, there is in no modern language a Bible worthy to be compared with its literature. They knew how to make the Bible scare the wits out of you, and then calm you, all in English, as superb as the Hebrew and Greek. Alexander Gild says, It may serve as a lexicon of the Hebrew language, as well as a translation. John Dowen said, It is exceedingly doubtful whether a translation has ever been made from any ancient book, Greek, Latin, or Oriental, which in point of faithfulness to its original can be compared with this, to attempt to supplant it by a new version or to introduce any material alterations would be like gilding refined gold. That to try to replace it would be like taking pure gold and then using gold paint over it. God said, the words of the Lord are pure words. As silver tried in the furnace of earth, purified seven times, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. That God promised that He would preserve His Word. Mark 13, 31, Jesus said, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but My Word shall not pass away. You know, next week, we're having a missionary with us. And then the following week, we're going to be having our children's um, program. And so I'll be preaching on something different. But then the following week, we're going to get more into the history of some of the modern English Bibles. We won't have time to get into every single one, but we're going to be talking about the methods of translation, the text, the manuscripts, and really the pivot in history in 1881 when the Revised Version came out. And we'll be um, talking about that in a few weeks. But you know what? The Bible, why is it written? You know what? But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through His name. It's what the Word of God is for. That people might have life. That they would have the light. That they would have the message of the gospel. That even though they may currently be in darkness, that they would then be in light. That they would be freed from the bondage of sin and from guilt and be able to live in victory in Jesus Christ. If you don't know Jesus as your own Savior, please talk with me and we'll show you from the Bible um, how you can know with absolute certainty how you can know for sure um, that you are going 
to heaven. And um, we had our first of our, um, just some announcements real quick. Our first marriage recharge this last week. And um, we'll be having our second one this week. We had a guest family come. Um, we had several guest family that registered, um, but they, weren't, they didn't make it. But pray that they'll be able to make it this next week. They could have just forgot or whatever. I sent an email out. But give, give out those marriage recharge cards. You know what? We want this to be able to be a blessing to people that people will know, find Christ if they don't know Christ. Um, and that Christians and that people will um, have their marriage be strengthened. And so that's on Wednesdays. We have our 126th church anniversary um, coming at the um, end of the month. And so really the next three weeks we won't be dealing with this topic. It will allow me more time to study up on it too. But um, we got our missionaries next week. On March 16th to the 17th, we have the Higher Call Youth Conference. It's just going to be in Lacey, Washington at Temple Baptist Church. Um, if um, parents who want your teens to go with, <clears throat> go with my, me, um, I'll take them. Or parents could come if um, parents want to come along. And um, it's going to be good Bible preaching. Um, Jim Shetler and Eric Getch will be um, the preachers. Of course, there will be fun things as well, like bubble soccer. Um, so maybe I'll play bubble soccer with the teens, amen? But um, best thing is, it's free of charge. No cost for this one, amen? Sometimes there's cost for different events. This one is free. And then on March 18th, um, one will be having the Bible Kid Venture. You know, invite any parents with kids to come. Um, so the kids to come to that. And also we'll be observing the Lord's table that day. Um, usually we do it on the Tuesday or Wednesday before Easter. Um, but with, um, with us doing the marriage recharge, we're going to go ahead and do it on Sunday instead, following the regular service. We'll just kind of have a 10-minute break. I'll try to be done with the regular message at noon take a 10-minute break, and then start at about 12.10 um, and observing the Lord's table. On April 6th, um, there's the Ladies' Spark. Um, this is a ladies' get-together at Olympia Bible Baptist Church. And this year, no costumes, don't got to dress up um, or anything. So some of you that don't like dressing up, this one's not a dress-up year. But Dave and Grace Hardy will be the speakers there. And if you could... Um, um, try, um, there is a fee for it. The fee's like $30, $35. But we're, um, the church will supplement the, um, part of the cost. So just $20. And it's really going to be about an all-day thing. Be leaving the church at about 11 or 11.30. And it'll be from 1 to 9 o'clock. And there's a mixture of good Bible lessons, um, both from Dave Hardy and Grace Hardy. Um, and as well as some fun for the ladies. And lunch and dinners provided as well. And so that's what the cost is going to. Is there anything else? Yeah, it's just a really great time for the ladies. So if I can, some ladies are interested even, let me know today. It's <laughs> Amen. Oh, God bless you. Shake hands. Fellowship. Be friendly. Because the time. I'll take questions in the foyer um, instead of during the service. <clears throat>